You are listening to The Natural Philosopher with Dr. Mick Pope, a podcast on science, the environment, and the Christian faith. This podcast is written and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, acknowledging that sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Well, welcome to another episode of The Natural Philosopher with me, Dr Mick Pope. And it's a cold Monday night and I'm sat in front of the Giro d'Italia, bit of a cycling fan, and trying to get my master's thesis done. And so in a, by a piece of serendipity, I went searching for a particular quote or page reference uh, for a thesis chapter and came across the following that I'm going to read to you. So this episode's entitled Why Academic Study in a Time of Climate Emergency? And it I'm kind of prompted by this too because last week I put together an episode and I asked could a Christian call Earth Mother and I phrased it as a question because I want to invite dialogue you know I'm genuinely pursuing these issues of course listening to the podcast I come up with the answer of yes I think so uh, it's an avenue well worth pursuing and and one commentator in a one particular Facebook group talked a little bit about um, navel gazing and Christianity now, and I fully appreciate that because we are in a time of, of climate emergency of uh, the Anthropocene, where human beings are having a huge impact on the planet, and we need to act quickly. So I don't think our reflections mean locking ourselves away forever, but in one sense almost should be done on the fly or done in the heat of the moment, as I think many of Paul's letters were. But nonetheless, don't we want to start as Christians with a solid Christian base? And some people are called, I think, to academic study. So I want to read to you this paper now. Uh, which I gave at a meeting of RASP, which is a, a research group in social policy at the University of Divinity, and was published in Zadok Perspectives, which is a quarterly of Ethos, the EA Centre for Society and Christianity. So here we go. In the autumn of 1939, C.S. Lewis preached a sermon entitled Learning in Wartime. In it, he asks whether academic study is a suitable activity in a time of crisis like war. We could easily ask the same thing of the current climate emergency or the broader catastrophe that is the Anthropocene. And I've spoken about the Anthropocene in many episodes now. Humanity, at least a small and privileged part of it, has turned its hubris into overdrive and become a geological actor among other forces. We live in an apocalypse of our own making. And I should say as a, a well-off Western Christian, I'm part of that 1% that has a significant impact. But when I, when I talk about uh, the small and privileged part, I'm looking at not just myself, um, but need to look at myself, but even the, the bigger end of town. Uh, in particular, I'm thinking of those who work in certain sectors and and um, for now they'll, they'll remain nameless, but you can think of a few, no doubt. Now, Lewis asks whether the academic tasks 
we undertake will be completed. In a world war, like World War II, there was the distinct possibility of beginning but not surviving to the end of a PhD. So literally dying because of the war. Now, in a country like Australia, the climate emergency is not yet so dire, although various possibilities exist. And when I wrote this, it was at the start of the Australian fire season that was so devastating. And, and people do lose their lives in, in those kind of uh, catastrophes. However, one of Lewis's other questions remains less existential and more ethical. Quote, How can we continue to take an interest in these placid occupations when the lives of our friends and the liberties of Europe are in the balance? Is it not like fiddling while Rome burns? Rather than just Europe, although ferocious heat waves are becoming more frequent there, it is also Syria and its conflict exacerbating drought. Indian agriculture suffering under irregular monsoons. Oceania and Tiwi Islanders watching their homes disappear beneath the waves. Indeed, it is Australians threatened by fires made worse by hot and dry conditions. Now, some friends of mine think that, quote, greenies are better servants if they fight fires rather than protesting the burning of our democracy by fossil fuel companies. And, and it happens sometimes in some countries, complicit politicians willing to silence science. And I think that would be a fair evaluation of what happened in the United States up until recently. How much more might they think higher research in theology is a complete waste of time? Lewis frames his argument in terms of heaven and hell. If we can conduct our everyday lives under the shadow of a journey to one or the other, he argues, surely a little war or a changing climate is no impediment for going about our studies. Well, I think such a framing is inadequate for two reasons. Firstly, it reduces soteriology, uh, which is the theology of salvation, to a form of afterlife insurance. And I'm pretty sure you're familiar with such a view, that uh, salvation is pie in the sky when you die. Secondly, its focus on heaven and hell lacks a resurrection theology, a problem that plagues popular theology today. And of the last chapter of my book, All Things New, God's Plan to New Our World, is a bit of a rant about Christian music that talks about heaven a lot, but doesn't talk about resurrection, doesn't talk about new bodies, doesn't talk about the connection between resurrection and justice, or climate, or a number of issues. So such anemic theology can do little to address our present crisis. Such thinking is the very thing the academy can address. On more useful ground is the assertion Lewis makes that, quote, human life has always been lived on the edge of a precipice. Human culture has always had to exist under the shadow of something infinitely more important than itself. If men had postponed the search for knowledge and beauty until they were secure, the search would never have begun. We are mistaken when we compare war with, quote, normal life. Life has never been normal. Now, I should have inserted a sick 
at the point where he said if men had postponed the search for knowledge and beauty as if women had never been involved in such a search but we'll grant Lewis that one I suppose as a, as a product of his time but you get the picture at one level Lewis is correct and yet when it comes to the global climate he is incorrect let me explain about 11,000 years ago, the planet left behind the cold, dry, and low carbon dioxide Pleistocene for the recent period, known as the Holocene. A warmer, wetter, and more stable climate allowed agriculture to develop, which in turn led to the building of cities, the development of writing, the origins of the world's major religions, technological developments, and art and music. It is, however, a conceit to think that civilization is purely a Western phenomena. This ignores that in 1610, a global minimum in carbon dioxide levels was reached due to 55 million deaths in the Americas caused by introduced disease, famine, war, and enslavement. These deaths led to over 50 million acres of agricultural land returning to natural vegetation. So that's the tragedy of colonization, something that we need uh, to continue to force ourselves to come to terms with. In Australia, evidence of permanent stone settlements, eel traps and large-scale agriculture, as Bruce Pascoe was shown in his uh, Dark Emu, all indicate that sophisticated cultures worth of any definition of civilization existed well before Europeans arrived. What then of the Anthropocene? It is precisely this, that a small part of our species has pursued a destructive way of life. This path of destruction has its roots in the clash of civilizations that was the so-called, quote, age of discovery. If we face the apocalypse today, indigenous peoples have centuries of experience. Now, geologically, the beginning of the Anthropocene is marked by a spike in radioactive carbon in the atmosphere, which is associated with nuclear testing. And the date, uh, usually quoted, is 1965. How poignant that one life-threatening technology should herald the beginning of an age of death, and some have called this Necrocene, due to um, what's often referred to now as the sixth mass extinction event. The Anthropocene is also identified with the Great Acceleration, a period of rapid post-war growth in several socio-economic trends, including population, urbanization, GDP, energy use, and water use. Associated with socio-economic trends are environmental ones, such as climate change, the increasing acidity of the ocean, the contamination of ecosystems with novel pollutants like DDT and plastics, and species loss, as I mentioned earlier. These trends represent a departure from Holocene conditions, sawing off the log, if you will, from underneath our feet, or the branch, more properly. Puzzlingly, climate change remains contested space. It is not so in the science community, though in the media, politics, and sadly the church, it continues to be debated. What do we know about climate change? Well, uh, this is nothing new for this podcast, but... The burning of fossil fuels has resulted in global carbon dioxide concentrations rising from 280 parts per million at the start of the Industrial Revolution to now over 400 parts per million. I've not checked the figure recently, but you get the idea. 
This value has not been seen since the mid-Pliocene some 2.5 million years ago. The Pliocene was dominated by much higher temperatures and sea level than today, and of course no human civilization. At about 1 degree Celsius of warming above pre-industrial levels, global mean sea levels have risen by 21 to 24 centimetres since 1880. Glaciers melt, raising sea levels, while melting permafrost unleashes atmosphere-warming methane. In Australia, wintertime rain systems have migrated south, and bushfires have become more intense due to drier, warmer conditions. A business-as-usual approach, which is the approach of the fossil fuel industry and many governments, will lead to 4 degrees Celsius of warming and 1 to 2 metres of sea level rise by the end of the century. Venice, with its recent flooding problem, uh, back a year or so ago, will disappear underwater, as will nations like Tuvalu. Millions along the Ganges River in India will be affected by sea level rise at one end and melting glaciers at the other. Famines will follow as increasing temperatures affect cereal crop yields. Meanwhile, the intransigence of Exxon and other fossil fuel companies supports this path of destruction. It's now pretty well known, it's not particularly controversial, that Exxon lied about climate change, and now they lie about their lives. We are told that fossil fuels are good for our economies, or they fuel the destruction of the basis of our economies, that is, ecosystems. The prefix in both words, ecosystems and economies, eco, derives from the Greek word oikos, meaning household, and what poor oikodomio, or household managers, we have been. In the oceans, carbon dioxide makes for uh, acidic waters, or more acidic waters, still um, alkaline, increasing, um, increasingly threatening coral reefs, shellfish, and the people of Oceania who depend upon them for their protein, or Pacifica. Fossil fuels have helped us produce fertilizers that bring life in the fields, but death in the waterways, and plastics that choke seabirds, turtles, and whales. These plastics are also in your water, and you probably have some in your stomach. Land clearing in countries like Australia drives animals and plants to extinction, and the price of carbon storage further feeding climate change. The Anthropocene also challenges basic assumptions of modern thought. This includes the dualism of culture versus nature, ideas of human agency as unique, and an earth system which permits individual human action to be disconnected from its wider consequences. So, the dualism of culture versus nature, this idea that human culture is above and beyond and superior to nature, ignores evolution, for example, ignores the fact that other animals have cultures, like whales, which pass on whale songs, but also draws a sharp connection and forgets that our culture is dependent upon nature to support it. Ideas of human agency as unique, I mean by which the very fact that the Earth system has all these feedbacks built into it, that if human beings and their activity push the system in one direction, the Earth itself will act to push it further in that direction. Again, that's that metaphor of cutting off the, the branch underneath our feet. And the Earth system doesn't permit individual human action to be disconnected from its wider consequences. We all influence the Earth system in one way, shape or form. Now, all of this 
has a theological underpinning, and I'll talk about that in the second half of the program. Well, welcome back. If you use the, that beautiful short musical interlude to do something else and stop the recording. Uh, otherwise, let's keep going, shall we? So we're talking about the Anthropocene and whether or not that and climate change are appropriate settings for us to engage in theological education. We come to the point where it's worth considering the theological underpinnings or the things that have driven the Anthropocene, where Christianity is complicit. And I was talking about the separation of culture versus nature. And this comes from a, a misreading of Genesis chapter 1. Scholars such as Michael Northcott, um, who's a, a Brit, and Peter Harris, an Australian, have pointed out that the dualistic turn occurred in the time of Francis Bacon. Nature was viewed as inert and unconscious. Uh, this is in the time of the cogito, cogito ergo sum, or about that time, which influences the idea that um, human beings are the only rational creatures. In particular, human uh, European males were the rational image of God. Those closer to nature, that is women and indigenous peoples, were less than human. How easy then to manipulate nature for human ends until nature can take it no more. How easy to burn witches. To assume terra nullius and murder, dispossess and enslave. As I said earlier, the Anthropocene arrived centuries ago for some. And if we're going to heal the rift with the earth, we have to heal the rift with uh, the first uh, peoples of the so-called New World. And countries like, uh, or continents like North and South America and Australia. Now, the Anthropocene reveals that while humans are its cause, we are not the sole causal agent in the Earth system. As I talked about before, that various feedbacks can drive the Earth in a direction in which we've forced it and really take over. Genesis chapter 1 prepares us for what science now reveals. Michael Velker sees the creation narrative as far more complex and subtle than a simple emphasis on the exercise of causative powers by a transcendent being. Now that expression, causative powers by a transcendent being, simply means, well, God we acknowledge as being outside of the creation, or we do in, in more classic forms of theism, and exercises causative powers. In other words, God can do stuff, and more than just a big human being, is the general understanding. But Velker sees uh, God in Genesis 1 as evaluative and reactive, God declares creation to be good. That's a phrase that's used uh, seven times. And names what has been created. We see that creation is an active partner with uh, streams watering the earth and the earth putting forth vegetation in response to God's command. Often, the creation is depicted in parallel with God. Hence, the firmament, uh, that is the rakia, the thing that uh, in the sky, the solid surface that's meant to exist in this picture, separates waters from waters. And God separates as well. So those two things happening parallel. God makes the lights to rule, and these lights rule, lo and behold. That's the, the sun, moon, and the, the stars. Humans are also involved as sub-creators. 
Now there's a bit of a debate about whether or not that should be co-creator, creating alongside, or sub-creators. And I'm reminded in this context of um, a section from Carl Sagan's Cosmos. Um, to, and it's a bit funny, I think he's talking about atoms and atomism. And he says, to make an apple pie, you must first create the universe. Well, human beings are good at making apple pies, or at least some are, but not so good at creating universes. So we are sub-creators rather than co-creators. But we cooperate, as Genesis describes, in the act of creation, both the tilling of the earth, and that's in Genesis 2, 5, and the naming of the animals. God's reactive response to creation is no more strongly evident than it's in relationship to human beings, and that's Genesis 2.20 and following. From this reading, Velka concludes that the creature, quote, is embedded in the process of creation and participates in that process. Now, if you accept uh, evolution by natural selection, then there's a sense in which that's no great surprise to some literalistic readings of Genesis 1, where God does everything by fiat, um, then then this is something of a surprise, and, that, and some people can't get past a really wooden uh, reading of this. A classic case is um, Graham, uh, Graham, not Graham, um, Wayne Grudem's uh, systematic textbook, which I no longer have a copy of, but I had to buy one for um, a particular place I was studying at. And he just drives, and God said, so far to... Um, produce a reduction to the absurd, reductio ad absurdum type argument against uh, evolution. It's incredibly naive and a really blunt instrument. So, creatures are embedded in the process of creation and participate in that process. We also see that God has little patience for human violence. That's in Genesis 6. And the good order of creation put in place in Genesis 1 over the chaos of the waters is unleashed in the flood. The Hebrew words in Genesis uh, chapter 1 and verse 2, tohu and bohu, I think I've talked about this before in another episode, are usually translated as formless and empty. Elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible, such as Isaiah 34.11, these words are used to indicate places that lack agricultural fertility. The creation account's penultimate act before the Sabbath rest of God is the giving of plants to humans and non-humans alike. Separating light and dark begins time on day one, and the sun, moon and stars mark agricultural seasons on day four. Separating waters above from waters below by the rakia creates space on day two, whereas putting the dry land in one place permitted agriculture and the granting of plants at food, as food uh, on days three and six. Hence, the significance of uh, the Noachic flood is that it was an undoing of... Um, this God-given order, so that habitation on the land and associated consumption of plant life was impossible. With the receding flood waters, some Christians see a promise that sea level rise can never happen again, that seasons will never be disrupted. But this same language of chaos and uncreation occurs elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible. In Jeremiah 4.23-26, it describes the Babylonian assault on Jerusalem as creation in reverse, with the earth returning to wild and waste, and it's those Hebrew words tohu and bohu, no light in the sky, day one of creation reversed, 
mountains quaking, that is the earth's foundations shaking, no humanity, that's day six reversed, birds fleeing, day five reversed, the orchard made a desert, day three reversed, and cities in ruin, which if you will is the reversal of Genesis 4.17. All of this is because of the heat of divine anger. So that's Jeremiah chapter 4. Likewise in Isaiah 24, the earth dries and withers, that is, it's useless for agriculture, verse 4, because like Genesis 6.11, the earth is polluted. In this case, pollution is due to covenant violation, that's in verse 5. The curse of verse 6 is that the inhabitants of earth dwindle, an undoing of the blessing of Genesis 1.28 to be fruitful and multiply. And finally, in case we miss the theme of uncreation, verse 18 of Isaiah 24 tells us that the windows... Uh, the Arabah of heaven are opened just as they were in the flood, of Ge- in, which is talked about in Genesis 7.11. Hence, acts of divine judgment throughout the Hebrew Bible are envisaged using a similar vocabulary as the Noachic flood, that of uncreation, reducing order to disorder and chaos. The link between human sin and the turning of order into chaos, suggests that global sea level rise due to human-caused climate change can be thought of in similar terms. Now this brings us to a quote by American environmental lawyer Gus Speth. You may be familiar with this quote. Uh, he observed, uh, quote, I used to think that top, uh, the top global environmental problems were biodiversity loss, ecosystem collapse, and climate change. I thought that with 30 years of good science, we could address these problems, but I was wrong. The top environmental problems are selfishness, greed, and apathy. And to deal with these, we need a spiritual and cultural transformation. And we scientists don't know how to do that. End quote. The, Christianity, uh, uh, the Christian Academy must respond to this challenge. We need an academy, I agree, that is not locked away from the concerns of the world, but more thoroughly engaged with it, deeply embedded in its problems, deeply embedded in its solutions, but deeply informed and enlightened by biblical scholarship. Let then the Anthropocene, with its climate emergency, be one of our hermeneutical lenses for examining old theological issues in new ways. As Martin Luther King Jr. said, quote, One of the great liabilities of history is that all too many people fail to remain awake through great periods of social change. Today, our very survival depends on our ability to stay awake, to adjust to new ideas, to remain vigilant, and to face the challenge of change. And I think the Academy can really help in this. So let me give you um, some ideas worth considering. Firstly, our doctrine of creation needs reconsidering. Rather than focusing on what happened in the beginning, we need to understand creation as an ongoing act of God. Likewise, focusing on the hows of creation miss questions of function, relationship and human agency and responsibility, which has been a big focus of our masters. The Hebrew mind, like many of the ancient Near East, believed something existed when it had a function, a purpose a set of relationships. While atomized thinking in science is slowly giving way to systems thinking, folk theology 
is still tied up in tired old debates of creation versus evolution. These debates typically ask the wrong sorts of questions with the wrong sorts of assumptions and are ill-equipped to provide us with useful sorts of answers to more pressing questions. Secondly, our view of the world is often too dualistic. Resurrection means that matter matters to God, that Jesus redeems flesh and not merely the human. In Revelation 21, we read that all things are being made new. All branches of theology need to be read afresh through the lens of the Anthropocene and allow our understanding to be upended by it. Good theology in the academy should inform good theology in the pulpit and good hymnody. Heaven, as Tom Wright rightly puts it, is important, but it's not the end of the world. Too many of our songs locate our future in heaven rather than in a resurrection where heaven and earth unite. How can we embrace God's plan to make all things new with such cognitive dissonance Sunday by Sunday? Likewise, missiology, the study of missions, can't be the same after 1965, if not after 1492, uh, when the West invaded the Americas. Earth-shattering events shape our sense of mission to the world, the subject and methods of mission, and our understanding of what it means to be a missional church. To recognise that the Spirit hovered over the waters is the same Spirit that leads the church, groans with us, and might be said to groan with the groaning creation, opens up not simply the Missio Dei, that is the mission of God, but the Eco Missio Dei, the whole household mission of God. Further implications include the notion that the Eco Missio Dei can occur outside of the church, calling it forward and leading it with a little child, and that has occurred for tens of thousands, uh, and that it has occurred, sorry, for tens of thousands of years through the guidance of the Creator Spirit. Ecomissiology in Australia is unavoidably post-colonial, informed by the non-dualisms of Indigenous Christianity. When I said uh, leading it with a little child, that was a, a bit of a um, meant to be a subtle reference for Greta Thunberg and, and others of the youth climate movement. Finally, the academy in the age of the climate emergency is unavoidably and always engaged in public theology. To be sure, this will sometimes be lament, contrition, public repentance and active listening. At other times, it must be fiery prophetic denunciation, radical identification, cheek-turning, burden-carrying, all-revealing shaming of the powers. To be radical for its own sake is not the gospel, but neither is the seeking of safety in the wings of empire. The climate emergency is not one of Lewis's same old emergencies, but neither is it the apocalypse as popularly understood. The world needs neither apocalyptic hysteria nor the tired old platitudes about hope from a church that doesn't really understand the problem or doesn't really care, or both. Instead, a hope carefully crafted by the scholar and proclaimed by the church, yet even more embodied, is what the world needs. So, hopefully you found that um, interesting, thought-provoking, and 
bringing you back to listen to more. And for the moment, thank you for listening to this episode and God bless. You have been listening to The Natural Philosopher. This podcast was written and produced by Mick Pope. The theme music is from Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons, conducted by John Harrison with the Wichita State University Chamber Players and downloaded from the Free Music Archive. You can subscribe to this podcast on Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts and Spotify. You can also like and comment on my Facebook page, Mick Pope, Natural Philosopher.